Music to my ears, the podcast that discusses generational wealth and wealth in general. Welcome your host, Stephen Lewis. Welcome to the Music to My Heirs podcast. Today's episode is focused on how the most successful entrepreneurs invest after selling their business. And look, there's numerous articles out there on the secrets of the ultra-wealthy and the different things that they employ, but whenever it comes to a very high net worth individual and coming up with solutions, I've got one resource I go to every time, and that's my good friend, Deacon Turner, who's here with me today. Hey, Deacon. How you doing, Steve? Doing great. So let, let me give you a little bit of Deacon's background as we get going, just so you know. He is a uh, senior managing director here at A.B. Bernstein, and he's been with us since 1998. He leads the firm's efforts in dealing with the wealthiest clients and entrepreneurs, our family offices, endowments, and the foundations, and he does this both nationally and internationally. He is a graduate of Harvard University, where he was a Harry S. Truman Scholar, and he went on to get his master's from Oxford, where he was a Rhodes Scholar. Currently, he's serving on the board of the Cherokee Nation Businesses and is also a trustee of the Smithsonian National Museum of American Indians. Normally, I hit you up with, what are we seeing right now? Right? Right. What are the opportunities where someone can really take advantage of the current situation? I'm going to ask you to not go down that road today. I'm looking for something that if we listen to this five years from now, what you're going to share would still be relevant. Okay? Sure. Maybe as a way to begin, I'll present a little bit of a hypothetical scenario. You can take us through how you would think through this. Let's assume that you've got a business owner. And he or she has just had a big liquidity event, maybe even their first time. And they look in their bank account and they now have $60 million show up. They come and they schedule an appointment to sit down with us. And you come into the room. What are you going to first tell them about what to do with that $60 million? Well, I'm going to ask them a really basic question up front. Okay. What kind of pre-transaction planning did they do? before they signed that letter of intent on the sale. Because that's a critical point in demarcating value, kind of freezing things from a planning standpoint. And I'm going to hope to God that they made some intelligent decisions before that. Can I ask that question of them? Yeah, you, you can ask the question. <laughs> How often do you find out that they haven't done a whole lot of pre-transactions? Unfortunately, I'd say it's almost 50-50. You know, these are people who have been so head down focused on developing and running their business that they haven't thought through all of the various um, components available to them under the tax and trust and estate code to really help them manage how their wealth is going to move through generations or where to the specific pockets they may want, like philanthropy. And they come to that after they get liquidity and have often left things on the table. So, So rule number one to anybody listening to this is if you're contemplating the sale of a business, before you take that letter of intent, you really need to think through what your options are from a uh, planning standpoint. That's literally that will save, in all likely, in most circumstances I'm used to saying, that will save more money than any investment manager will ever make the family. How far ahead of me selling the business should I be talking to somebody? I, I think if you have a business that's stable, growing, that has real value in the marketplace, you should always be thinking what your options are should a, a sale transpire. 
let's let's say okay now we're in the situation that that didn't happen and they're looking to you and saying okay well you're dealing with clients that are like me all the time what are the big mistakes that are being made well i think there are a few basic ones again this as sexy as we want to make this industry um, success in my opinion comes from very basic blocking and tackling that most people want to overlook um, to use your example you've got a 60 million dollar uh, post transaction pot of liquidity most people are not thinking through some very basic exercises in terms of how they think about deploying that capital um, you know they have many friends who are going to want them to angel invest or seed into their deals they're going to have a host of money managers chasing them to deploy capital into certain hot, sexy things of a given moment. But the mistake I see really comes down to fundamental basics. Number one, what kind of lifestyle do you want to maintain as you roll forward? I don't think enough people really give thought to that. And frankly, my experience is, is that there's no level of wealth that is secure from profligate spending. I don't mm. care if you have $60 million. I've seen people take it to nothing because of imprudent spending decisions, mm -hmm. not just in investing. But, you know, you're rich. Now you want a plane. And then the next thing you know, it hasn't worked out. You see it with sports stars all the time, right? You get a bunch of hangers on. You buy a bunch of expensive properties. You get homes in Aspen, all of those things. And the next thing you know, it's eaten into your wealth. So the very first thing I think an individual who's gone through a transaction should be thinking about is a very deep, basic analysis of how much wealth they need to maintain their lifestyle for as far as they can see, where you can pre-plan for things like college educations for kids or grandkids. You can plan a home. Everything you can forecast, you should incorporate into, a, let's say, an analysis of your core portfolio. And I would call that your kind of bomb-proof money. You want to mm -hmm. treat that differently than any money that um, you have that goes beyond what that amount is. So let's say you've got a, a fairly rational individual maybe spending, let's say, $500,000 a year. They have no debt. They've had the $60 million transaction. They're going to end up needing something like 15 to $20 million mm -hmm. to maintain that core. That's going to be allocated substantially differently than what you can do with the money that lies beyond that. You know, you've essentially got another 40 to $45 million that you have some real decisions you can make about capital allocation, whether that's going to philanthropy and a family foundation, whether that's going to be uh, reinvested in a business. All of those things are secondary decisions, but establishing that core is the single most important thing an investor should take on. So if I hear you right, we're talking about a much different asset allocation for the core portfolio. Then we're going to look at for this surplus things that put into next sure. gener generations. What are the biggest differences between a core and a surplus type so design? The main thing that's going to affect a core portfolio, and look, everybody's different, right? You've you got to come down to your own psychology as well, right? Maybe you're not going to be that different from the rest of your capital, but my feeling has always been that people want a bomb-proof portfolio. They've made a ton of money, right? They've had this successful transaction. They want a very comfortable portfolio that regardless of recessions, market fluctuations, whether we're in war, we have oil embargoes, who knows what happens, that they can maintain the lifestyle they want to have. That's why it's so important to establish that. And that's why I think frequently it has a different investment profile because what you're really trying to do is mitigate volatility substantially. Mm -hmm. And you're typically trying to maintain liquidity as well. 
um, on, on both fronts. And by the way, for your other part of your portfolio, whether you want to call that surplus or excess or whatever else, I've never met anybody who had too much money. So I find both those words kind of ridiculous mm-hmm. to say I have <laughs> surplus capital. But let's say it's your really long-term mm-hmm. portfolio. You can actually exploit volatility and illiquidity to add value and really, really grow that wealth beyond your core. I get the part at the beginning. If that's my core, I'm typically looking for some liquidity. I hear low volatility or lower volatility. I Oftentimes, we talk about things like absolute return. I'm really focused on things that are going to provide consistency. How do you exploit illiquidity? How do you exploit volatility of the surplus? I'd say a couple of things. You've got to realize a few things. Um, first of all, most investors, with all of their wealth, and even if you think about big pots of money, people don't like to see their, their portfolio value fluctuate that much. And so they tend to stay out of volatile parts of the market. That leads to mispricing. That actually represents an opportunity for an investor who can withstand volatility. And let me make one thing really, really clear. I think it's a fundamental flaw of the investment management community and how you know, the financial news operates that they treat volatility and economic loss as equivalent. They're not mm-hmm. the same thing. Volatility is price fluctuation. And if you're not a forced seller, you don't have to be a price taker at what could be a bad price to you. Um, by the way, if you have the wherewithal, you can actually be uh, the person who exploits another person's pain in the marketplace when prices are down. Um, you know, we saw this in 08 and 09 after the market sell-off. People who had the ability to step in to disrupted assets got heroic returns because at the point of maximum pain for others, the prudent investor, that stalwart investor, could step in. I think that's a critically important point. That's why it's so important to understand what's happening at the economic level of your investments. If you have a stock portfolio of, say, 20 names, you need to understand what's happening in the cash flows of those companies such that if prices sell off, as long as the companies and their free cash flow and the nature of their businesses is strong, you can maintain that through time. Honestly, that's why equities have done so well you know, over the last number of decades because at the end of the day, they're really discounting future economic growth, productivity growth, and the like. There's been all kinds of volatility along the way. But in the long term, stocks have been exceptional winners because they get that growth. If you can ride through that volatility, you benefit. Why it's so important to get the planning right on the front end is knowing as you go in that you're going to plan for volatility. And I would say some of the lessons that I saw, whether it was in endowments or in foundations or individual families, is that they hadn't pre-planned a risk event like the financial crisis of, of 2008. And consequently, they cut their portfolio allocations to what really should be longer-duration assets like stocks. And they didn't rebound in the same way that the markets did because they had taken risk off the table. If they had thoughtfully planned through what they should expect, protected their core, they should have never made those decisions. In fact, if you look at what I consider to be the best-run pots of money, whether that's individual family offices, uh, really smart entrepreneurs, or some of the better uh, college and university endowments around the country, they look nothing like what the typical average, even high net worth investor looks like. They have significantly higher allocations to riskier assets, to illiquid assets, to alternative assets, which consequently has ended up meaning that they have significantly higher returns over the last several decades. 
So you say higher allocations. If I'm a business owner or even an individual that's never really experienced this large of an amount of money, I feel like initially I start with I'm going to sit on the nest and make sure nothing happens for a little bit. How do I get the psychology through that this idea that volatility, I'm supposed to embrace it and I'm supposed to like it? Don't business owners typically hate volatility? Well, yes and no. They all got rich because they exploited volatility and mispricing okay. for the most part, right? So if you think about what entrepreneurs do, they build their business in an environment where most people misperceive the risk. But for the most part, entrepreneurs I know really use judgment and hard work to figure out how to grab an edge in a marketplace that others did not understand. And that's why I think it's so important to distinguish volatility from real economic loss. Because as an entrepreneur, you've just had this big liquidity moment. And I I want to come back to a psychological component of deploying the capital here in a moment. But as an entrepreneur, once you've established that core, you know full well that you got rich because you took a long time horizon viewpoint on your business. You ran it professionally. And whatever the vagaries at any one time, and every entrepreneur I know knows their business was radically less valuable um, at some point in its prior history than what they just got in the transaction, it didn't mean the future was impaired. It just meant, you know, there were problems in the marketplace. They've lived through those times. So they understand the difference between price volatility and real economic loss or risk. I think that an entrepreneur, really, since they intuitively get that, if they've built a core, maybe with even a cushion, that can protect them, they get the chance to lean into businesses they can do underwriting on, whether that's far-flung fields from private equity, real estate, private credit. They can take the time to really develop an astute portfolio where they've done their, their homework, where they've really thought through what they're engaging in, that they get both intellectually and emotionally. Last part's really important. And when they do that, they tend to lean into things where others aren't. Again, disrupted parts of the market. They understand what it means to be an opportunistic investor with a long-term commitment to disruption. You, you bring up an interesting point through that. You talk about the individual business, and you think about the fluctuation in value that was going on below the surface. But for the most part, the owner of the company may not have seen the value change. Pretty different than when you look at a portfolio or a group of investments when you're giving values on a regular basis. Is there a mistake being made when investors look at the value too often? Look, we live in a world where your portfolio can be on your iPhone and you can look at it multiple times a day. What value is that giving you? You're going to sell it every day? Is your portfolio a checking account? I think it's crazy. What matters more is what's actually happening to the investments within the portfolio from the thesis they were purchased on and what's happening in the world around them. If you understand that, you shouldn't really care what your price fluctuation is on a daily basis because frequently these are investments that may be harvested over a number of years, not at a given moment. I think we've all done ourselves a disservice of making the information immediately available and thinking that we should want that. And There's probably some optimal point, monthly or quarterly, that you should look at things. But I think it dovetails to information flow generally. I I believe there's an inverse value to the immediacy of information. So if it's on the Twitter or the Internet, it's nowhere near as valuable as something like a daily newspaper. In the same vein, a monthly periodical or every several weeks, like, you know, say The Economist or The Atlantic – is usually infinitely more valuable from a perspective and real information standpoint. 
And the same way that books, in many ways, are much more valuable in terms of real information that you can guide yourself on than a shorter lifespan piece of information. And ultimately, classics that have been around for hundreds of years have more value than today's best business seller. So the slower the information, sometimes the more value it is because you can be more contemplative about it and understand it at a more profound level. That same holds true in how we think about our portfolios. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I had somebody say one time, you know, it's a little bit like watching a baseball season pitch by pitch. You know, you're either going to be real happy or real sad whether or not a strike or a ball just came across the plate. But it tells you very little about where your team's going to end up by the end of the year, right? And most of us don't want to have the heartburn of watching it so close. So sometimes you just need to enjoy the game and, and, and watch it play out. But as you were going through that, I was thinking about you said some of these investments as you look out a year or two, three years. What about liquidity? Because I know if I owned the business – as much as I may want to sell it, or even sometimes real estate, if I own it and I want to sell it, that may not be something I can do tomorrow morning. The process takes a while. Right. So should I be avoiding things that are illiquid like that? No, I don't think so at all. I think the question ultimately comes down to the planning exercise I mentioned earlier. Probably not a lot of illiquid things in your core portfolio, maybe a little bit. But fundamentally, when you think about that money that lies beyond what you need for your regular lifestyle and say you're planning over the next five or ten years, that money can be really long-term in nature because you can capture the illiquidity premium, which is essentially a rent investors get for parking their capital and locking it up for a long time. If, if there's a bubble in anything today, it's in that immediate access to capital that people have have come to believe they should have, whether they use ETFs and, and index mutual funds or, or whatever it is, there is a, a real lack of desire by many investors in the marketplace to lock up their capital. Consequently, those investors who can get paid an extra premium for it. That's why it's also so important to pay attention to things like what's happening at the economic level of your asset. Frankly, if you think about what a stock is, which is a share in the equity ownership of a company, even though you can sell it on a daily basis, it's ridiculous to own stocks unless you're taking a three- or five-year time horizon with even those, quote, liquid assets. So there's a mismatch between how it's owned and what it should actually represent in your portfolio that I think people confuse. What percentage would you be comfortable committing three years or five years I guess maybe there's a point in time you go, well, that's too many years. I mean, 20 years, I don't know. But well, there's it, it, a point in time I also have to live with my wife, too. Right, right. <laughs> but I, I think there's a lesson to be learned, too, from looking at, I mentioned the community of large family offices, endowments and foundations, and the like. What you see there, and I think much of this is a development of real visionaries like David Swenson, who ran the Yale Endowment starting back in the 80s, where they really realized the classic stock bond mix was not going to work for an entity that has such a long time horizon as a university endowment. And they developed a truly profound suite of investments that lie outside the traditional norm. They've significantly lowered their fixed income exposure for sure. They may be in alternative credits, but they've lowered that classic fixed income amount. And in many ways, they've often typically moved beyond traditional equities into private equity, real estate, hedge funds, and the like. Their returns have just been spectacular. I mean, what I see, and I, I would say this is one, we're, we're, we're working as a firm, we're working on, uh, I think, some, some cutting-edge planning that attests to this, but 
I, I can look at the hundreds of really rich people I deal with on an annual basis around the country and in Europe, and the default line is something like 25 to 30% of their portfolio is in illiquid long-duration assets. Mm. Not in one thing, right? Sure. Split up, but that's the baseline. And I actually see a rise from there to where you see 50 60% depending on the amount of excess capital and the time horizon for that capital. That's why the planning part is so important on the front end to figure out what do you really need for core to maintain your lifestyle in kind of a bulletproof way and then lean into the rest. So, okay, so you just said the real estate word. Mm-hmm. I was looking through uh, a pretty interesting survey done by KKR in 2017, looking at the ultra high net worth investor coming of age. And they were showing the difference between high net worth and what would be ultra high net worth. And the biggest difference was this alternative class, right? The things that weren't falling into just traditional stocks and bonds. How do you think of real estate? How do you think of private equity? Hmm. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about real estate in one way that maybe uh, I would challenge everybody on is just because you own a really nice house and maybe a second vacation home or you've got one strip mall location you're a partner in with some of your friends, that doesn't mean you're exposed to real estate as you probably should be. I would argue pretty strongly that if that's what you're doing, you're dabbling. What you really want as a baseline for asset allocation would be to think through about building a properly managed, nationally diversified portfolio of real estate. That can take on different flavors, right? And I'm not talking REITs either. I'm talking about illiquid real estate, private equity. You know, and you can do all kinds of things from income-producing properties that are incredibly low leverage and very well managed with a lower expected return to specialty situation, you know, where you got to move in and do a lot of heavy lifting to add value. But if you do, you tend to get very significant returns. I'm not preaching any one of those to anybody. you got to find out, you know, working with your financial advisor, what best suits your needs. But that is a very different thing than having some local buildings in your local market. And I, I think that's one place that people really need to think through things. Kind of in the same way, you see people in private equity make, I think, two mistakes. One is I'm never going to doubt many of the entrepreneurs with whom we deal, their network and their ability to make shrewd decisions on small private positions. Never going to knock that. I bet 95% of the entrepreneurs we work with continue that kind of activity. Mm-hmm. But that's typically going to expose them to a small local network yet again. I think having in the equity space or even in energy in terms of private equity, having properly developed portfolios that are kind of an asset class type commitment is really important. And that's where the second problem I see people have, which is mostly you know myopically focused on their own network, they go get one fund, one vintage, one time. Mm-hmm. And if they luck out and it's a great, great year to start investing in the space, they do well. And if you're coming into a private equity fund, like you see somebody go into a private equity fund that started in, say, 2005, results aren't the same. You have to commit to multiple vintages as part of your long-term portfolio. And as one is harvesting, you're making the next set of commitments so that what you're really developing is a long-term view of the asset class, not only its return characteristics, but its diversifications away from all of your other holdings which is something we can help people think through, understanding that it's not a one-shot, one-time deal, but that you're making a long-term commitment. And by the way, that's a good thing for entrepreneurs. These are people who've been very busy their whole life. 
I think engaging in this process of building your portfolio, monitoring your portfolio, understanding your portfolio investments down at a granular level is a task the entrepreneur should embrace because it's fundamental to how they built their business in the first place. I'm not saying be the investor on a daily basis, but treat this as a professionalized activity where they can add a great deal of value because they're ultimately going to understand their investments that much more profoundly. I've seen for a number of them, it gives them something to take care of in the way and the, with the preciseness that they took care of their mm-hmm. business. We've gone to the point now that day one of asset allocation post-sale is the reserve for the next business. And when they're telling me, well, that's not going to happen, I'll, I'll, they're, they're, they're delusional they're, or lying. Right, because <laughs> at some point they're going to tell me, well, I, th- I found something. And we're always ready f- yeah. for that situation. You mentioned one more thing that I want to make sure we cover before we finish, which was watching this and measuring it. For so many of the clients out there, we hear, I need to know exactly what benchmark I'm going to measure this against. Even more often, I want to measure everything we do versus, say, for example, the S&P 500. In your experience, what benchmark have you told them? You just told me I've got private equity, I've got real estate, I've got you know equities, I've got illiquid, liquid. How am I measuring this? I think that's a, a very hard question because there's not one good answer. Benchmarking as we know it, from my perspective, is a little bit of an illness because it's putting a non-related factor like, say, the level of the S&P, it's putting that into the context of driving how you run your portfolio when what should really drive your portfolio for your core, for instance, is your lifestyle and spending needs Mm -hmm. and the risks you're willing to take on. Most of the benchmarks you see, nobody measures the risk attached to them in terms of fluctuation, right, or volatility. They don't understand, like, looking at the S&P, it's dominated by about five to ten companies today which have really gapped away from everything else. And that's true in virtually every other broad equity benchmark around the world. So you're moving into a price-insensitive, largely FANG or tech stock portfolio if you went and bought the S&P today. Is that something you want to measure yourself against? The need to measure doesn't necessarily mean you get great results. I think those can be illustrative. I Frankly, I think people should look at the MSCI world. They should look at the Barclays aggregate in terms of where fixed income is at. They should think about inflation, right? But I think the target should be much more something like, this is just generic, right? Everybody's going to have their own portfolio. But, you know, like what I seek is I want to have inflation plus five. If I get inflation plus five and I've done it with moderated risk in terms of when I say risk, I don't care about fluctuation. I'm talking about economic loss. If I've achieved that through how I've built my portfolio, I'm happy. Right? That's really hard to get. Yeah. And I think that kind of model is what people should be shooting for as they evaluate things. By the way, when you're looking at a portfolio and, say, it's lagging on an IRR score, there may be incredibly good reasons that you should be happy with that. That's why it's so critical to understand what's happening, where the rubber meets the road element in your portfolio investments. When you make benchmarking the god. You quit looking at what's happening down deep inside the portfolio. And back to your very first point, I should also care with how is my core doing versus what I set out my goals for core. Yes. How is the expert doing based on if, the goals if, I set out for that? Right? Exactly. Measure against the plan and the goal I set out, right? Yes. And if we're on plan or right near what are, you know, on a probabilistic basis, then we should be pretty good. 
and it keeps people from making the knee-jerk reactions that often really damage them. They get overconfident when things are too good, they get too pessimistic when things are bad, and they start driving guardrail to guardrail. That's a mistake. You know, we've done a lot of research as a firm that things like dollar cost averaging into a portfolio position don't really work. I don't agree with that. And I, I don't agree with it because especially when we're talking about our $60 million entrepreneur who's never had liquidity like this, mm-hmm. the worst thing that could happen to her would be she fully deploys the portfolio in a short period of time and you get a massive correction, financial crisis, whatever. And then the natural reaction would be to feel burned and want to de-risk away from what the long-term plan is. There's two attributes to long-term commitments to things like private credit or energy or real estate is they tend to call your money over a period of time, which is effectively dollar cost averaging, number one, very prudent. And two, even in the core, very liquid stuff that you can invest on a daily basis, I still advise people to take a period of time to build into their position just so they can get psychologically used to having this kind of liquid wealth and what it means to them on a daily basis so they can grow used to managing a pot of money like this. It's a totally new skill set. And I realize that flies in the face of what the investment community wants to say. But I know in your own practice, you do the same yeah. thing. It's just not going to happen. D- does it need to be two years? D- could be, could depending be? on the person, okay. right? Depending on the person. But certainly six months, a year, 18 months, as long as you're moving toward your plan. And then, of course, if you've incorporated some of the alternatives we've talked about, they may take two or three years to get fully deployed. That's okay. That's dollar cost averaging in to what could be, at any one point in time, a volatile world. Some people are driving in their car. Some people are sitting around, have a pen and paper. I'm going to sum this up. And tell me if I'm off. Here's what I'm hearing that we need to be focused on. One, we've got to be willing to deal with some illiquidity in the parts of our portfolio where we're going to be paid as long as we're being paid for it. Yes, and you should want to be as You should be looking for the illiquidity. You should be looking for it. Right. I should learn to understand where volatility can benefit me. And don't look at volatility as just a detriment. It can be a real positive. If you just, again, think about the right place. As far as information or looking at my information, less is probably more. And pick the right amount of time, but don't look too often. It's not helping you. It's probably hindering yeah, you. Quarterly is better than weekly. Quarterly, undoubtedly. Better than, right? <laughs> better than weekly. There you go. I need to make sure I've got my core in my plan. And at the end, the idea that I don't have to rush this into an investment strategy. Why should you rush? Right. If, if we really have a long time horizon here, one year is not going to make a hell of beans. Deacon, so many great points. Thank you for being with us today. And I hope you join us for our next podcast. This has been Music to My Ears. For more information on this podcast or to ask a question, just email us at stephen.lewis at bernstein.com. <laughs>